Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello everybody, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to our webinar, Blockchain in the Bond Markets Could Be a Trojan Virus That Kills Incumbents. At this time last year, we asked the question, whatever happened to blockchain in the bond markets? After all, bonds seem ideally suited to being issued, traded, settled and safe kept in tokenized form on blockchain networks. Cost of raising capital in the bond markets should, in theory, fall dramatically. According to an HSBC report I read recently, the cost to an issuer of raising $100 million would fall by 90% from $6.5 million to just $692,000. If those cost savings are applied to annual issuance in the global bond market as a whole of $27.3 trillion in 2020, just two years ago, we're looking at annual cost savings of $1.6 trillion. Now that's obviously worth having. That's $1.6 trillion more dollars invested in production or innovation or indeed the environment instead of lining the pockets of investment bankers. Better still, all sorts of issuers could come to the market in all sorts of sizes. Because for bonds on the blockchain, there would be no difference in costs between a $10 issue or investment or a $10 million issue or investment. So the prospect before us presented by blockchain is a lower cost of capital, lots more issuers, and lots more investors. What's not to like about any of that? So are bonds on the blockchain actually happening? And if not, why not? Are those potential savings an illusion? Or is somebody preventing them being captured? To help us answer these questions, I'm joined by six people who've not only been thinking about these questions for much longer than I have, but have actually been acting on them too. Charlie Berman is CEO and co-founder at Agora Digital Capital Markets, which provides a private permission blockchain network for all participants in the bond markets from pre-issuance to redemption, and which uses smart contracts to improve efficiency in the bond markets. Stefan Bossart is product head fixed income at Six Digital Exchange, the Swiss security token exchange, which recently co-listed a digital bond in conjunction with the traditional securities market infrastructure of its parent company, Six. Oyi Chu is CEO of ADEX, the Singapore-based mass regulated security token exchange that is making privately managed assets and asset classes available to retail and institutional investors. Marco Monaco is sales director EMEA at Consensus, the Ethereum software company that focuses on building tools for developers and enterprises that aim to facilitate the migration to web 3.0 across multiple markets, including all sorts of financial services and the bond markets. David Nickel is CEO of Ledger Edge, the London-based and the first FCA regulated decentralized marketplace for corporate bonds. The Ledger Edge team have pioneered a new trading ecosystem for digital markets that allows buy and sell side firms to trade these relatively illiquid assets without expensive information leakage. Raja Palani Appen is CEO and co-founder of Origin Markets, the seven-year-old firm which provides the primary market with collaboration, workflow and analytical tools to make bond origination, documentation and post-trade processes more efficient. In addition to our panelists, of course, we also have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments. Uh, so do send them and keep sending them via the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. Uh, we won't be saving them up to the end, but we'll address them as we go along. So you can be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the start. And I speak, I think, for all seven of us when I say we're going to be very disappointed if you don't take that opportunity, uh, particularly because you'll have more than uh, the usual amount of time to take part but with such a large subject and such a large and brilliant panel, uh, we're going to extend the discussion from 60 minutes to 90. So do please stay with us and join the conversation. 
I'm going to kick that conversation off by asking whether the tokenization of bonds is progressing fast enough. After all, the World Bank, which is a benchmark issuer in the bond markets, issued a bond on a blockchain as long ago as 2018. Since then, we've seen government bonds, corporate bonds, asset-backed bonds, green bonds, they've all been issued successfully onto blockchain networks and a whole series of experiments and proofs of concept. So we know the technology works. We know, I think, that the savings are real. So the question is, why do we still have the same old structure of lead managers, depository banks, magic circle lawyers, even asset managers uh, in their underwriting fees taking a cut out of every issue? Why are we still using Excels, and telephone calls and emails and spreadsheets and various legacy systems? Why, in a word, are the bond markets on blockchain not growing like Topsy? David, could I throw this question at you first, uh, given that you're working in the in the corporate bond markets, the most uh, intractable and illiquid part of the of the global bond market. Am I right to think that progress is not proceeding fast enough? Well, thanks very much, Dominic, for the question. Thanks to the Future Finance Organization for, for hosting this. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this discussion with the rest of my esteemed panelists. I think it's, it's going to be a really great event. Um, I think that uh, the question of uh, progression fast enough or too fast or not, you know, not fast enough is uh, really in the eye of the beholder. You know, I, I um, think that the the corporate bond market has a lot of uh, services to, to provide to the world um, in through the primary issuance process and in the secondary market process. Um, we, we at Ledger Edge are, are dead focused on the secondary market. We, we have a regulated institutional grade exchange um, which is going live in the UK in, in two weeks. So it's, it's really exciting. Um, so I, I won't talk too much about the primary market, but I, I will say that the, the, mix of, um, the, the mix of factors that we feel need to come together to push this, this digital market, this digital bond market into the next age is, is a combination of, of regulated grade infrastructure, regulated grade and institutional grade uh, infrastructure, which I, I think the rest of the folks on this panel are doing a great job of providing as, as we are at Ledger Edge, um, a product market fit and, and working really closely with the market uh, to ensure that the solution that you're building is, is providing real value today and real value in the future. Um, I think once we have those you know, three factors um, put together, then you, you have a really viable, a really viable business, really viable solution. Um, and a lot of that going forward will involve blockchain and DLT um, technology solutions. So um, I, I think that's what we need to kind of put together. I, I would also say that, you know, underpinning all of that is a, is a known certain and, and advancing regulatory environment. Um, there are different regulators in, in lots of different jurisdictions who are taking, you know, uh, varying views on, on this market. I think everyone's trying to provide clarity. I don't think that anyone's trying to kill the market. Um, and, uh, and I think that as those, those three factors of solutions and that regulatory clarity comes about, we'll see even more innovation in this space and this really, really important market where, where you know, there's still a lot of work to do. Oh, yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit about, about the corporate bond market in, in a moment. But before I do, I'd like to ask Stefan, because one of the things David mentioned there, Stefan, is, is the need for a regulated standard of infrastructure, if you like, a kind of institutional quality infrastructure. Now, STX obviously provides one of those. Uh, you know, it's a Swiss stock exchange. It, it's properly regulated and so on. What is your response to my suggestion that, it, you know, I've got a great list of these these experiments in the bond markets going back in fact to 2017 i mentioned world bank we've had eib come to the market twice 
Um, we've had dozens almost of, of I think it is almost a, a dozen successful corporate bond issues uh, onto blockchain networks. We've had asset-backed bonds. Um, we've had our first um, green bond issued uh, by BBVA a short while back. Um, now, what is your what is your reaction to the fact that despite all these successful experiments, we're not proceeding fast enough? Uh, very good question, um, Dominic, and and also from my side, thank you very much for having me on the panel. So it's it's a pleasure, it's an honor to be here. Um, from my perspective, um, also a bit from a Swiss perspective, I think it might seem slow or at least slower than expected, uh, but it's steady, right? I mean, issuances are coming and all of them add features constantly. So be it in pre-issuance data automation, or as you mentioned, in, in getting digital assets regulated, which is uh, what we might have added to uh, as a feature to the whole digital asset journey. Um, we haven't invented digital assets, we just put the regulatory wrapper around it as, a, as an exchange and the CSD. Um, this is needed, I think, to, to improve usability and efficiency of digital bonds, uh, which makes it harder not to go digital for the market participants uh, with every issuance. I also think that keeping in mind that a bond issuance is always a very big project involving a huge number of actors uh, from issuers to syndicate banks to investors to infrastructure companies etc cetera, etc cetera. and in order to make an issuance a success all players need to be comfortable uh, and we are not there yet um, i would say so at stx we were able to show that this works in switzerland as a comparably small market but internationally, there's much more parties left to be convinced, and I'm sure we can convince them uh, in the coming years. Thanks, Stefan. Oye, you've you've at ADEX recently um, hosted a, a bond issue led by by UOB, um, you know, a corporate bond issue. Part of that was was placed in tokenized form. What is your reaction to the idea that we're not progressing as fast as we should be, given yeah. successful experiments? I, I think there are many factors, and Stefan touched on some of them. Uh, I would say that uh, ADEX has now about 11 uh, bonds that have transacted through our platform. A number of them are commercial paper um, uh, uh, commercial paper bonds, sort of three-month types. And we see exactly from that, and those are completely digitally native. So from the documentation to the issuance to the distribution, uh, all that end-to-end, -end, completely native. And we exactly show what the benefits are. Now, when we try to do the bigger corporate bond, so uh, UOB launched part of that portfolio, uh, a part of the SEMCORP bond on our platform. But the today, uh, we just announced that uh, UOB just priced a Singtel $100 million bond, uh, just priced and, and placed and going to be launched on our platform to be listed and traded. In reality, through these processes, we realize there are many other stakeholders that uh, have issues uh, around synthesizing the tokenization to what is the traditional bond. In a simplistic way, the regulators in Singapore have said, you know, the tokenized version should be the same as the, as the underlying security, right? So we uh, really, Addix was created off the back of that um, elegance. But what we also realized that when you come to corporate bonds, there's so many stakeholders, including the settlement piece or even just the documentation from the issuer. You know, where, where do we push digitization in a program document to be part of standard, right? That's one. Two, as I uh, sort of observe, 
I think the regulators in different parts of the regulation, as well as the capital, for example, um, the definition of the capital um, for a bank to hold on to a bond, that's still not exactly defined, whether a tokenized bond is the equivalent of a bond. And so there are many, many uh, stakeholders that are in different speeds of adoption. And the word tokenization obviously comes in different formats, whether it's a public chain, in our case, a private permission chain, and we're completely regulated by MAS, is I think there's still question marks and the world needs to get there before I think we can fully uh, step on the pedal when it comes to size and adoption. Thanks, Oi. Charlie, uh, you've heard um, Oi there mention you know, some another set of very successful experiments they've had on 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 her exchange. But am I am I letting my neophilia and impatience get the better of me when I say, well, this is a hundred and twenty trillion dollar global market. We've got twenty seven trillion of new issues uh, in twenty twenty. So it's a vast market. Yet we're sort of still very much not just even the foothills. We're in the sort of molehills of of changing that. And am I right to be disappointed, Charlie? Uh, well, I think. David or someone said earlier on, it depends what your your starting point in, for expectations is. Um, we're talking about, well, everyone has a different number for how many tens of trillions the markets we, we're, we're trying to act on are, but let's just say they're very, very, very big. And um, these very, very big markets have evolved over many decades. 50, 60 years, if one looks at the international bond market, goes back to Auto Strada in the, the 60s um, and the days of Sigmund Warburg. Uh, there is an awful lot of embedded architecture, um, both in terms of legacy infrastructures, uh, uh, and, and people know that. People know that um, the, the, the current systems uh, very often run on um, you know, not just 30, 40, but 50 year old technology. And I think there are very few people that say, that's great. That's that's just the way things should be. Uh, what a lot of people will say is, well, we know the architecture is old, but it sort of works and we get there and it's incredibly expensive to, to overhaul it or change it. So you know, maybe not now, maybe next year or whatever else, but let's, let's see this, let's, you know, let's wait a little bit longer or let's see this proven. So the, the legacy architecture is a critical issue. Um, uh, the, but the other elements sometimes get forgotten, which is the incredibly complex legal and regulatory frameworks around um, a, a what is a very highly regulated industry. So the very nature of what is a bond, um, this is not, we're not talking about the world of um, I'm going to use this term in a narrow sense, cryptos, cryptocurrencies, where the whole nature of it is, um, this is peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, we can make the rules up as we go along. Whatever the, whatever the participants want to see, we can do, and no one else is going to intervene and tell us what to do. We can't do that in the world of bonds. I mean, simply, if you look at what is a USITS compliant bond, this is this is a subject of legislation. This is a subject of, of, of much regulation. Um, we can't dispense of MIFID, CSDR, 2, 1, whatever. All of these issues are incredibly complicated. 
Um, we also have to look at uh, what is the nature of the instrument we're offering and how it's offered. Now, for the vast majority of people, uh, this involves a natural language legal document, a prospectus, a program, or whatever else, which is the governing document and which will define how this instrument is supposed to behave in a whole number of different situations. That's still the norm and that's still what we have to account for. So the idea that we can suddenly overnight uh, evolve or move from um, the first tentative steps to um, you know, tens, hundreds of billions of, of issuance is, is simply not credible. So I think if some people are disappointed about the pace of change, and there's no one more impatient than me for change, then I think we need to have a sort of sanity check on what is what is achievable and what is possible. This is an enormously complicated industry and an enormously complicated set of changes that need to take place to get there. So um, do I want to move faster? Absolutely. Um, are we, do we have a right to be disappointed? Maybe. Um, is it understandable? I think yes, as to where we are. Thanks, Charlie. And I hope we'll come back to the regulatory point you, you raised um, a bit later, because it is an important one and maybe not as big an obstacle as we think. Um, I was a bit... But Dominic, I would say I think it's a huge obstacle and, and, and one that people misunderestimate. So let's not, let's not think that's going to be waved away in a... In a well, in we, a, we can go there now. We, we, we know these things are securities. Um, and therefore they can be regulated as, as securities. Well, hang, hang, I challenge, Dominic. Hmm? What, what, what things do we know as securities? Well, bonds, these, these bonds issued onto blockchain networks, what we're talking about, tokenized bonds. These will be regulated in, in common law jurisdictions like the UK and the United States. They will be treated as securities. We know that. We also know that the EIB went to France to issue that... Um, that, that bond on a public blockchain because the French had passed a law saying they could do that and they could dispense with the CSD and a custodian at the same time. So I, I wonder whether your whether regulation is a sort of excuse which people are using not to, to get engaged with the market. You just think I'm wrong? No, no, I, I just think that I think some of those statements are a bit sweeping mm -hmm. uh, in terms of um, that it's all solved. I, I don't think that's the case. Right, well, you know, th this is journalism. Um, Raja, you've, you've been very patient, um, as has Marco, who I'll come to in a minute. But um, tell me, Raja, what do you think is preventing the, the vast issuance and transaction volumes we need to get this market going? We've also had a comment on this from, from a member of the audience, which I'll, which I'll come to in a minute. But Raja, tell us, where are the volumes going to come from and how soon? Um, yeah, no, good question. and. Um, you know, I'll, I'll actually kind of back up Charlie on, on this point. I think, I think regulation is, is a huge impediment. Um, and I think it's not because the regulation is static per se, but it's the regulation combined with the existing market architecture, right? So there's, as Charlie pointed out, 60 years of market architecture that has organically developed, you know, as 
the regulation of the international bond markets have developed over the past half century. So because it is a regulated industry, we have incumbent architecture that's very brittle, right? So even if the laws can change, the architecture is still there, reflecting the way things have been done in the past, right? And whether or not the laws can change and thus can um, change, change the architecture, it's important that we recognize that any, um, any change that is going to happen in our market is going to happen at a glacial pace compared to any other market. And it might never happen. And a, a lovely anecdote that I like to think about is um, the wonderful case of Uber, right? So um, it was a former Barclays CEO from the 20, mid 2010s. He sort of left and he was like, oh my God, you know, there's going to be the Uberization of, of banking and blah, 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 blah. If anyone still tries to use Uber today, especially in London, guess what? You can't get a cab and it costs the same as a black cab. Because Uber wasn't a tech play. Uber was regulatory arbitrage. They decided to try and arb away the employment cost of their drivers and class them as contractors. Yes, they had a smartphone app yeah, and, and GPS, cool. But it was really regulatory arbitrage. And they sort of broke the law and then asked for forgiveness later. And now we've come full circle and 10 years later, the regulator said, no, no, you know what? We've looked at it and all of your drivers are employees and you owe them holiday and benefits and pensions and everything. And thus their business model is now the same as a black cab operator. And but thus, how do we, but know, how do we they, know Roger, that, that, that in, to take your Uber analogy, that, that um, the regulators were not in the pay of the, the incumbents. For example, I heard, um, I heard um, Charlie say that, that the incumbent banks in the bond markets say it's terribly expensive to change their existing legacy technologies but it's also massively expensive for the issuers you, you heard those figures i took from hsbc report the 90 percent of those costs yeah but, could go but, away. but hang on and those no, no, costs are, on, 90, are the income of those incumbents no 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 but, but that report i read it honestly it's bullshit so that that ninety percent that ninety percent figure so they take the example of a hundred million us dollar issuance and they say the costs associated with that are $6.4 million. So that means that if you we were drawing up the term sheet, the borrower would be borrowing 100 million and their net proceeds would be 93.5 million, right? That does not happen in real life. In real life, especially, I mean, you know, okay, I, I, I'm not operating in the high yield project finance part of the world. Our, our customers are supernational sovereigns agencies, you know, AAA, AA, single A borrowers. They issue prices par, sorry, the, yeah, the issue prices par, the all-in issue price is 99 spot 60, right? So the cost is not $6.5 million for that type of issuance. It's probably 60 to 100K today. So yes, we fully believe that there is a cost benefits to digitization and whether that digitization is workflow digitization that we do or kind of a more overhauling digitalization you know, involving DLT. Yes, there are going to be cost benefits, but that sort of figure in that case study is grossly overestimated. If it was that much, you would have seen adoption much, much faster. And like a final point that I will say is I think, and this is a little bit more self-serving, you know, the problems in the capital markets are essentially twofold. And both of those problems many times get conflated. And 
there is a digitization problem, the digitization of workflow. And then there is the question about digitalization of assets, right? Mm. And I'm going to use another analogy, right? So if you think about online banking or electronic banking or the way that we interact with our banks, right? The capital markets are at the equivalent of the stage where you used to have to go to your bank branch to make a deposit or make a withdrawal. That's where the capital markets are. They don't, no, nobody has the equivalent of, an, of a mobile banking app or online banking. So it's still manual in that you literally go to the bank branch to make the withdrawal or the deposit. So you have to solve that problem first. You have to get to the point where every participant has an application on their phone, on their desktop, whatever, and they get comfortable with the online banking experience. Once they have that, whether or not they're withdrawing or depositing pound sterling or Bitcoin, that's, that's like the next leap, right? But you first have to get to the point where everyone has an application. Right? And the capital markets are still back at stage one where everything is over the phone and telephones and emails and, and everything, right? So I think when we think about, okay, well, what are the benefits that can accrue when technology is introduced to fixed income? It's important to separate out, well, what are the benefits that come from just giving everyone an application, like a digital entry point? And then what are the benefits that accrue from overhauling architecture and infrastructure? And mm -hmm. our view is that the majority of the benefits actually accrue from just giving everyone the application, right? Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in, Dominic, Raj, I 100% I agree. In, in the secondary markets where, where we work, there is so much innovation that's happening in, around digitization of workflow. It's exactly what you're saying, where you, you know, the, the ability to find a counterparty, to find liquidity, and then to execute on that liquidity through a digital channel is, is a massive step forward for, for this market, where only 30 or 40% of trades every day are, are electronically traded. So, so it's, it's a huge opportunity, and it, it is truly just what you're saying. It's about taking workflow, really understanding what the trader or the portfolio manager or the salesperson is trying to do, and then you know, representing that in a smart application that can do things differently. You know, we, we happen to use distributed ledger technology to make that workflow more intelligent, to, to harness the power of smart orders, um, but, you know, we don't require users to trade digital bonds on Ledger Edge. You know, we, we use bonds that are, you know, cleared and settled normally and, and held in custodians, um, just like bonds have, have always been, been held. I, I think that, as you're saying, you know, the, there's this big step forward in, in digitizing workflow. And then there's another big step forward with, with digitizing assets, because once you then have that digitized workflow, it, that, that workflow can start to interact with assets that can do things more intelligently. You know, maybe a digital bond can... Um, you know, manage itself di more differently or, or better um, or more automatically or with less manual input David, or with more I... accuracy than, than, than um, you know, kind of legacy bonds have been. I think in order to interact with that, you know, you need, you need infrastructure which can incorporate and, and uh, kind of empower those, those digital bonds to do everything that, that we're promising they can do. Um, so it's, it's stepwise. Maybe that's not as, as sexy as, as break it and then fix it later or, or, or you know, break things and and, um, and move fast. But I, I think it's the way that you kind of have to do it when you're talking about institutional grade markets. David, can I just very quickly, I'm very conscious that Marco should should should, should have his say in a minute. Um, if there's only 60,000 pounds to play with, dollars to, to play with, as, as Raja says here, who is going to get the benefit of all this process improvement in the in the primary market, which is what you're primarily talking about? Is that going to go to, is, that, is this being driven by the fact that banks are making such meager returns in the bond markets that they actually need to, to cut their costs in order to fatten those margins. Is that really what's going on here? This isn't about the 
the issuers or the investors at all. This is about the banks. Is that right? Dominic, everybody needs to cut their costs and everybody involved in the bond markets needs more efficient processes. Uh, just one stat, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to interject here, but you know, in the equities market, we have 98, 99% straight through processing of transactions. Uh, in the bond market, it's still in the low 80s. There is a huge embedded cost of doing business uh, which needs to be solved for everybody, not just the banks, but the CSDs, the IPAs, the custodians, all of the participants, because ultimately uh, the people that pay fees are issuers uh, and the, those fees are used to pay for all sorts of things. It doesn't just all flow through to the, 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 the bottom line. So everybody has an interest in increasing the efficiency and reducing costs. Mm -hmm. Okay, now Marco, you've been very patient um, you, you've heard all that. You, you've heard um, that uh, this is this is very complicated. Margins are thin. Uh, nobody addressed my question that I thought the regulators might be protecting the incumbents, or the incumbents are using regulation to protect themselves to some extent. But what is your what is your take on the current state of blockchain in the bond markets? Could we be proceeding faster? And in particular, I'm very interested to notice that, um, and I, I mentioned this earlier, this OMFIF survey of 21 benchmark issuers in the bond markets, 40% of them saying they'd be happy to go with a public blockchain. That surprised me, it might not have surprised everyone in this panel, but it certainly surprised me that people were prepared to, to go down that path as opposed to insisting on knowing who all their counterparties and uh, opposite numbers in the banks actually were. Marco, what do you think? Thank you very much, Dominic, and thank you for, uh, also to Future Finance to hosting us here. <clears throat> hosting me in this panel and say hello to, to all estimate colleagues uh, part of the panel yeah it's very interesting discussion uh, actually we had consensus are focusing a lot on the technology part so uh, we um, support our client in providing the technological stack in order to uh, issue bonds uh, or even manage bonds that are issued on a blockchain. Uh, yeah, um, I, I do agree with many of the uh, discussion point that uh, was raised up by, by my estimate colleagues here. Uh, I do really uh, think that uh, actually um, the regulatory environment, uh, it's not so easy. And, and I do agree, agree with many of them because uh, this is a highly regulated market and uh, the regulation is really tailored on the market infrastructure that has been built up today in the last years. So even if from a technological perspective, we could have some possibilities or do something uh, faster in a more efficient way or even better, like talking about DVP uh, instant settlement or uh, any other opportunities that, that this technology and the use of smart contract can bring to the market. Even in this case, the regulation is really tailored on what we have today uh, in, in the production environments on the traditional market infrastructure. So uh, from a regulatory point of view, there are a lot of requirements that still we need to, uh, to comply with. Uh, and, and by saying we, I mean, we as technology provider, but also our clients are actually uh, market participant, market players that needs to interact with this market. So yeah, um, th th there's, there's another issue here. So uh, at, at which piece the regulators can, uh, uh, can be uh, adapting fast to the evolving 
technology because technology is still evolving. Uh, and this connect also to, to the other part of your question. So uh, private or public permissionless infrastructure. Well, we see uh, from the evolution of protocols that we have today that these two environments are converging more and more. Uh, we already saw some issuance on permissionless environment, as you said, uh, and it really depends on, on the regulatory environment itself. That, that's the reason why uh, the, the bond that was issued on permissionless environment was uh, issued by uh, under France um, regulation. And that's because uh, how the French regulator uh, envisaged and uh, identified the, uh, the scope of the, of the security token in that environment. But again, I mean, uh, on, on permissionless environment, we are, uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, improvement and I'm talking about roll-ups or scaling solution that allow you to increase uh, privacy, but also increase throughput uh, and can actually allow you to uh, rely on Ledger in a very uh, private and secure way. Uh, that it's actually the proposition of having a permission and then control that infrastructure. So we are really converging. Uh, we are really seeing a, com a, com a convergence between these two different approaches. And uh, also with the maturity of some permissionless infrastructure, we see more and more a, a higher level of, of confidence uh, from market participants to, to rely on that. Thank if you. I may uh, actually just add a, a few observations. Um, Addix is a platform that does multi-asset. So I do actually have the, the front row seat to watch uh, different types of products uh, evolve. So we have private funds, et cetera, et cetera, but we also have uh, uh, bonds, as, as I mentioned. And what I'm observing is that if we are creating a platform for individuals and retail or what we call accredited investors, the adoption and the velocity, it's much higher. So let's say private equity funds or private REITs that are being sort of distributed down and, and traded on a platform to uh, individual investors. Actually, the, the thinking process and the adoption is very, very fast. But if we're talking about traditional bonds, and any time you have to talk to an asset manager or a bank or what I call the incumbent bond infrastructure, the speed of which that executes suddenly screeches to a halt. So my only conclusion is that there is an incumbency infrastructure. It's not just the regulator, it's also the traditional asset managers. And within that framework of banks and asset managers, you're talking about risk and ops. And, and just the whole construct of suddenly adopting a completely new technology and taking away the traditional need for, oh, the central dealing desk that goes through Euroclear, does it with Clearstream, all of a sudden you're saying, oh, let's do it on uh, blockchain. I think uh, it will still take a lot of time for change and adoption. Well, yeah, just on that on that point, if I, if I understand what you're doing correctly, for example, the, the, the private equity, the hedge funds, the the real estate funds which are listing on on adex one of the things you're doing to them by tokenizing them is making the ticket sizes much smaller so instead of having to invest a quarter of a million dollars you can invest twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand or five thousand dollars that brings in retail investors presumably through wealth managers and private banks so these remain accredited investors are you saying that if the traditional bonds also sought to appeal more directly to retail customers, if you like, through the same method that, that, that they would take, that tokenization would proceed faster or <laughs> not? No, well, I mean, there's a different dynamic there, right? A high grade bond 
is unlikely unless you have leverage and we don't provide leverage, uh, unlikely to be that popular with our individual investors for now. I'm saying it's the so it's the it's the speed of the adoption and individual when they come on onto our platform, right? They're already comfortable with our platform. So it's yes, buy this product or that product. An asset manager, if you called them today and said, hey, you know, addicts, we've got a few corporate bonds. We, you know, we have commercial paper. You know, these are really good traditional blue chip issuers. Would you like some? The first question will be, well, you know, I'd have to set up the ops. Who is my dealer? How do you settle? And, you know, even if it's a more efficient process, the mere fact that it's away from the traditional process means that they have to go up the chain for approval. And that kind of goes, okay. <laughs> It has to go up the chain for approval. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's my point. Yeah, then it, it never gets, it never comes back. Now, uh, uh, point taken. Now, I'd like to read out some observations by members of the audience. Um, um, Andrea Tranquilini says, the fundamental obstacle to the wider use of blockchain is the lack of a sound network favoring primary, primary and secondary market distribution. In case of bonds in particular, this is essential in order for the bonds to be recognized as high quality liquid assets and therefore usable uh, for margin payment purposes at central counterparty clearinghouses. Unless the blockchain environment succeeds in establishing this, the lack of a secondary market will be an inhibitor for the widespread use of blockchain. Now associated with that, R Ralph Kubli has an idea as to how to create that, that successful secondary market on blockchain. He says, I would challenge the notion that bonds are complicated. When they're reduced to the definitions of cash flows in algorithmic form, they're actually very simple. Therefore, the solution to finding liquidity in the secondary market, among other things, is the definition of the underlying cash flows and machine readable and machine executable descriptions of the cash flows. Barring this digitization of cash flows in bonds, there'll never be any liquidity on secondary markets on blockchain infrastructures. So um, I'm, I'm not sure what the, whether anyone wants to comment on that. Um, Raji, look as though you're winding yourself up to say something and uh, love to hear it. Yeah, no, sure. Um... And, and I say this, uh, you know, m most of the time at Origin, I sort of spend my time defending the fact that I, I wasn't involved in the primary markets in, in my past life. I was rather a secondary markets trader who's um, kind of masquerading as, as, as an originator. But uh, having been a secondary markets trader, I feel, um, yeah, capable of, of answering this question. And um, people need to realize that liquidity in the secondary markets is not a technology problem. And having a clearer representation of cash flows is not going to make technology magically appear where it isn't today. Um, the problem of uh, liquidity in the secondary markets and fixed income is twofold. One, as, as I think most people recognize, a corporate issuer who has one line of stock can have hundreds of line items of bonds, right? So if I want to buy and sell Apple stock, which I love to do, it's one line of stock. So everyone's buying that single equity ticker, whereas Apple already has know, 20, 30 bonds out there. An SSA issuer can have hundreds of line items. So that liquidity is, is kind of fragmented. Secondly, because of that, um, you know, uh, this, this is a comment that sort of, a, sort of a, um, is kind of attached to one of the previous points you made. Um, the lack of retail participation in fixed income is again, not a technology problem. In a previous, interest rate world, in a world where interest rates were 5 6 7%, there was heavy participation of retail in fixed income. You know, anyone who's traded German bonds, the German retail bond market is, is very, very uh, deep. You know, they love to buy 
BMW, Daimler, Volkswagen bonds. It, it's, it's just part of the culture. But in the past 12 years, we haven't had that. Mm. So, of course, there's much less um, uh, retail participation. And then added on to it, and this, again, is not something that technology is going to solve, regulation has changed over the past 20 years. So 20 years ago, you can issue a bond with a single euro denom, and it's the same set of docs. Whereas now, you know, issuing a bond with denominations that are applicable for retail investors carries a much higher regulatory burden than issuing a bond for a 100K denom. So it's not a tech problem, it's a regulatory problem. Issuers are saying, you know what? I get the same, I get, I get my funding, and I don't have to deal with the headache of retail investors and the possibility of a lawsuit so I'll just issue um, the institutional. And then the final point is, and this is, again, something that is, I think, an economic, intrinsic economic fact of fixed income that isn't um, the same fact in uh, equities, is that in fixed income, you tend to hold to maturity and then reinvest your proceeds, right? So the turnover of, of, of a portfolio manager, the turnover of a portfolio in fixed income is much, much less than the turnover in equity portfolio manager's portfolio. Right. So the amount of trading that goes on in fixed income is much less. So add that to the fact that you have huge, because fixed income is a fixed interest product, and you have huge intervention from the rule makers, i.e. the central banks in that economic environment or in that game. Oh. Right. So suddenly you have much, much less turnover and much less trading going on. And essentially what happens is you've got days where everyone's a buyer or everyone's a seller. Right. And in, to, in order to have active trading, you need days where you have a mix of buyers and sellers. So it's not that, you know, um, there is this magic pool of buyers and sellers and we just need a, a silver bullet piece of technology to bring them together. They just don't exist. If central banks did something that's dovish today, everyone's a buyer. There isn't a seller on the face of the earth. And then if tomorrow central banks do something that's hawkish, then on that day, everyone's a seller and there isn't a buyer. Right. So technology isn't going to solve that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good point that crazy monetary policies haven't uh, made liquidity in the bond markets possible. It also explains, I guess, why the, the private debt markets have been growing so fast in that same 12-year period that you're growing to, because you can still actually get a positive return there, whereas every single public bond is trading at a massive premium almost all the time, and the only way you can get at them is through some sort of fund. Anyway, very good point, Roger. Now, um, Pedro Baez, while I've got your attention, um, Roger, I'll answer this question. Pedro Baez says the figure of the HSBC report I referred to earlier, you know, the 6.5% you said was bullshit. Um, he says the figure there is focused on ESG green bonds, which means there are more steps required. You've got to explain what the issuer is going to use the proceeds for and what the impact of his usage of them is going to be. So each of those steps requires further costs, and therefore it's definitely more than $60,000 for a 100 million bond. Question then is, uh, are blockchain bonds more suitable uh, more justified in the case of green or ESG bonds than traditional bonds, uh, because you can automate more of those ESG green steps. Is that a fair point, uh, Raja, very quickly? Potentially, but again, if you read the report, they introduce very, very quickly and casually, if we introduce IoT and AI. So if, you know, uh, a, a car company is issuing a green bond and there are tiny little sensors everywhere in all of their all of their factories that are in real time streaming you know their energy usage of their factory that then gets consolidated into like this wonderful application that gets consolidated into a use of proceeds updates for every interest period and you know that's easier if you have these iot sensors everywhere rather than having an auditor manually going to the factory and checking the energy usage then yeah that, that, that's a wonderful world, but 
without these wonderful little sensors in, in the factory or in the supply chain or, or, or whatever it is, then, then you still need the auditor. You still need the, the second party provider to go and, and validate the use of proceeds and how you're doing a framework and all this sort of stuff, right? So yeah, maybe blockchain is one component of it, but the real component is the last mile. How, how do you verify the, the sustainability KPI that, that you're verifying against? And in the report, you know, the casual dropping of IoT and AI without much ex expounding on that you know, to, to me, just makes it a little bit um, suspect. Can I, can, I, can I just add to that, that, that I wish that I'd ever encountered in my period in the bond market, 6%, um, 7% fees. Um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a quantum here that even in, in, um, in the world of green bonds is just sort of, it's hard to relate to those, those margins. So I don't know where those numbers come from. Um, but I, returning to that point, Dominic, that I think you were trying to make is what is the opportunity through the application of blockchain, whatever wants to call it, DLT, and they're not quite the same thing, um, to, to the markets and what's in it for everybody. We currently have a world, uh, and I, to, to Raj's point, we, we need to distinguish between the creation of a digital asset, which um, uh, uh, which Oichi is, is is already doing um, out in Asia, um, and and people are trying to do here, and there have been some um, some successful uh, um, experiments with that, uh, and the the application of technology to improving workflows. The two things go hand in hand. And in the world that in which I operate, they very much go hand in hand, which is the reason why we are a DLT-based business. But we're looking at the two things. How do we apply technology today to improve workflows? And then how do we, which is all about laying pipes and rails, which will run the digital assets of the future, but rather like, uh, the, but they need to be able to run the assets of today. Otherwise, we, we're not, we, you can't turn off the trillions of dollars of markets and suddenly switch them into a completely different form overnight. So we, we need to be realistic about this. But the embedded cost that all matters of, uh, uh, all forms of DLT and blockchain can address is, we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people employed in financial services who spend their days emailing each other with, with PDFs and Word documents and other forms of attachment, reconciling information which sits within different data silos. And this embedded cost costs you know, billions every year. And there are various reports we can point to which try and come up with a figure uh, uh, as to what that is. So at the starting point, in terms of applying this to uh, existing markets, we need to address those issues about how do we do those things better? Now, uh, Raj's business is trying to do that. Uh, my business is trying to do that in a slightly different way. And we all have the goal of preventing or getting rid of a lot of that unnecessary reconciliation and checking. And I note one of the questions that came up is that bonds are very simple uh, uh, objects. 
uh, and I agree with that, that anything that is a, a formula um, is much better achieved or performed by a machine than it is by a person. And, and I think a lot of what we're doing is about that what does digitizing workflow mean? It means uh, take extracting that data um, and the logic to interpret that data and letting a machine do it rather than people. So if we just focus on that, and then the, it's a different conversation about the creation of natively digital assets. Um, and I think David mentioned, you know, Ledger Edge is completely agnostic as to whether or not the orders which it's galvanizing from the, the, from the buy side are about an existing bond or a new type of native digital asset. It doesn't really matter. What does matter is the manner in which you get to that. Uh, you get to that. Thanks, Charlie. David, um, listening to, to Charlie and, and, and to Raja, if I look at what Agora is doing, I look at what Origin is doing, I look at what, at what you're doing, one of the things that's striking to me as a sort of naive outsider is the lack of interest really in, in, in tokenization for one thing um, in the secondary market as opposed to the primary market. And I'm wondering, and this was the, 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 this is the purpose of the title of this entire webinar really, is that what that does give you, however you're looking to solve that primary market problem, does give you some kind of handle on the, on the data flows taking, taking place in the market. Whatever we think of the ability of reducing those to algorithms and, uh, and so on, but you can capture these, these data flows. So is, am, I, am I right to be surprised that nobody seems to be very interested in doing, none of the innovators which are on this panel seem very interested in, in tokenization. And is that because the real play here is to control the data and the data created by and flowing through these markets. If we look in the long, the long term, you're going to have all the price information, have all the order information, all the all the reference data. Can you transform the market from within? Because it is in the end, all this talk about reconciliation. And what we're really talking about is exchanging data, reconciling data. So, in in ten years' yeah. time, are you in a more powerful position to transform this market? Yeah, it's an interesting point about about data versus versus the assets. I, I think that um, I think that to to what Charlie and and Raja were saying, um, you know, the the uh, kind of the innovation here is a, is a lot around workflow. And, and Raja said, like, you know, liquidity is not a technology problem. That's that's something we we agree with. You know, the technology doesn't create liquidity. Buyers and sellers do. And and what we found is that in in this market, you know, that's that's and I'm talking about institutional grade markets, hmm. buyers and sellers may be there, but they, they don't have the ability to control their data, as you say, Dominic, in the right way to find the right opportunities. And, and I, I don't think that anyone is thinking, okay, I'll find more liquidity if I tokenize my existing holdings and then put them into, into a magic box. Um, and, and that's why we're so focused on, on workflow. I, I think that by, you know, by, by moving this market to a, a new um, a new type of infrastructure, a new DLT enabled infrastructure, we, we enable users to find better trading opportunities and, and see fundamentally better execution. And then we, we, we set up, we prepare, we're, we're ready for when the next wave of, of, of assets that are issued are DLT enabled, can, can do all this great automated um, 
stuff, can can respond to the market, can communicate with other market participants. You know, as a secondary market venue, we we think that the future is digital, and and we we see Ledger Edge as the very best place for digital assets to engage with the market or move. But I think to your point, is it about the data or is it about the assets? I think the the assets will be upgraded as the infrastructure is upgraded and as 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 market participants, especially issuers and those in the primary market, see the benefits of of digital bond issuance. Um, and and it requires infrastructure that can handle those new um, capabilities. I think the the data question is um, that, that you asked Dominic about whether you transform the market from within through it through a data play. I, I mean, I, I actually I think that the point in the grand um, modernization of of secondary markets uh, where, where 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 corporate bonds are today is such that market participants are actually waking up to the realities of the of the data commercial market, right? Like the the, the equities markets have had to innovate and modernize and electronify. And what did we see there? We saw that a lot of the flow um, is moving into ETF or ETF like like products where much of the market is, is dominated by the top 10 or 5% of, of equities. Um, and, you know, folks like like Memex are, are showing that there's a different way to manage data and, and share um, the, the benefits of data and the, the economic returns from data. I think that Corporate bonds are doing that all at once. What we're seeing from customers now is they want ETF-like products, they want parametric trading, they want high-level orders, they want portfolio trading, and they want to own and control their own data. And and so it's actually, I think that to your question, in in ten years, how will the market be different, and will it be a data play? I think it will be a connectivity play, and we'll be using the. We won't even be talking about what systems these these bonds are running on. It'll just be, yes, of course it's digital. Yes, of course it pays the coupon automatically. Yes, of course the coupon updates with sustainability link goals. Thanks, David. Now, Stefan, um, I'd like to ask, uh, you may want to comment on that, but I'd also like to ask you two very big questions here. One is that, is this tokenization question? Is there a tokenization opportunity here which is being ignored? And if so, is it in the pre-trade space? You know, should we be tokenizing term sheets, for example? Is it in the the primary market, um, the actual issuance process, is it in the secondary market? You know, it's about tokenized bonds being traded on blockchain networks. Is it maybe in post-trade? In other words, smart contracts pay coupons. Uh, um, is it all of those things? That's my first question to you. My second question to you is listening to, um, to Raja and to Charlie and to David, um, they've made the point very articulately that a, a big part of the problem here is, is these siloed work streams, these inefficient ways that the various parties and participants interact with each other. This is all about making that process more efficient, cutting the cost of doing that. And then the, co the benefits of that can be shared between issuers, investors, and indeed intermediaries. But is there, is, this, is there actually scope to disintermediate somebody here? I don't know whether it's the custodian or the paying agent or the underwriting bank, I don't know who it is, but those are my two questions. Where's the tokenization play? And is there a disintermediation opportunity here, which we're all pretending isn't there? Well, very good questions. Uh, thanks, Dominic. And and also, um, indeed, I'd like to uh, to comment on uh, on the points just made. Um, and and I 100% agree. I mean that the workflow digitization, or um, well, bringing the workflow on the ledger and bringing the assets on the ledger, that that, that has to go hand in hand and, and will go hand in hand. Uh, and the way we approach it is, um, I mean, we on our platform have uh, digital native fonts. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be workflow supported by the ledger around it. Uh, but we also allow the, them to be traded 
wherever you want to trade them. And there's other exchanges just allowing them to be traded digitally. You can trade them down the pop OTC if you want to. That's no problem at all. You can trade them traditionally, but it's a digital bond. You can only unlock uh, the benefits, though, if you're actually using a digital venue um, to actually trade them there. And also the other way around. I mean, we can bring traditional assets to a digital exchange and give them some of the benefits um, of digital trading or well, digital transactioning, uh, although not all of them if they're not native uh, digital, obviously. But to your questions, um, where I do see the opportunities or the, the, the benefits of, uh, of tokenization, um, I, and you mentioned some very good areas, uh, pre-trade, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think the ultimate goal of bringing the currently physical and sometimes very heavy prospectus into code that can bring huge efficiency gains. And that's what Roger, for example, mentioned. Um, that I 100% agree with that. So just imagine we could include the prospectus into the asset itself and automate covenants, corporate actions and everything, which is then actually what we as regulated CSD are planning to do uh, via smart contracts and, and make the bond in a way self-living uh, and self-paying. So that, that's actually the way to go. And that's where I see the benefits. Um, primary markets, absolutely, uh, very good example. Um, especially as this would allow issuers to to receive the money faster. That isn't a huge problem, to, admittedly, in, in Switzerland, but I heard uh, internationally that is uh, one of the issues that issuers are facing. Um, secondary market, well, being a regulated exchange, not surprisingly, I 100% support that, that uh, we see a huge opportunity there with, uh, with the DLT, uh, especially if you're running the depository on the ledger, uh, as we do. Uh, and let the trading when you communicate with the ledger so that in fact you're allowing trading with atomic swap which means instant settlement but as a trading party you will have no settlement risk at all which means you're allowed to trade with any counterparty you like even if you haven't onboarded them and that's that's different to how you do it today so you don't need credit lines here for example and this is a big change, um, especially as uh, central counterparties still are not used in fixed income usually. Um, well, there are markets where central counterparties are used, Switzerland being one of them. But getting rid of the settlement risk of the counterparty risk through atomic swap, that's what I see as the big benefit um, that DLT offers. Um, Post-trading, obviously, being also regulated CSD, 100% agree. Um, that also goes into the pre-trade section, right? I mean, if you're automating the prospectus, uh, the more legal documents which can be put into code, the more efficiency we will see in, in asset servicing. Um, so absolutely agree on this one. Um, with, with the silos, um, I, I do agree here as well. That's, that's probably um, the, the bigger issue here, that we, we still work on different silos. We still need to do reconciliations on, on data all the time. Um, and there, I think, again, I'm, I'm convinced for the moment and for the coming years, this is an efficiency play. And with breaking up the silos, with having um, a ledger, which is immutable, which uh, is the golden source of data, that allows all the players to, to act more efficiently, um, have lower costs, uh, and that helps everyone. Do you think, you didn't address my question about disintermediation. I mean, is, is this, the elephant in the room or are these people that are going to be interacting with each other more efficiently all needed i personally think that in the coming years um all the intermediaries they will still be needed i mean there's there's a certain stickiness um in the market 
Um, that's, well, you can argue some of the investors are, uh, are conservative or they just, they have their own rules, they have their investment guidelines, and they're also bound by regulation to do certain activities and some not. And therefore, they rely on the players which are today in the market. Um, and, and that's also, I think there are two very good examples in Switzerland where platforms, very innovative and uh, very interesting platforms, try to disintermediate uh, the syndicate banks in the issuance process of bonds. And they have both failed. And the reason why they failed, um, despite generating lower costs for all the involved parties, was there was nobody to moderate the book building process. It was a very clever algorithm. It worked perfectly, but there was nobody moderating it, which means that the pricing in the end resulted in a way that the issuers weren't happy about it. So they they went back to the old way of doing things just because it worked in the past. So I personally think that there will be a time where this intermediation will, will work, where we will have less intermediaries. But I think we, we need a lot of time and we need a lot of changes in the rules, uh, regulators thinking about it uh, until we get there. People prefer a human to an algorithm setting the, setting the price. Well, I'm not, not no, sure no, if no. they prefer. It's, it's just if there is nobody moderating, um, it's just nobody setting the rules in a way and it could, be, could go in either direction. As moderator of this webinar, I'm very clear, I'd be very happy to give way to an algorithm. <laughs> one can be designed, so let me know. Um, uh, Oye, can we just, uh, uh, to the, the comments coming in are, are somewhat behind where we are, but I still think they're quite interesting. Um, Jill Rain has pointed out that um, we were talking earlier about the fact that getting a positive yield on a bond in the developed market is almost impossible due to the crazy monetary policies. She points out that in emerging markets, there are still plenty of, of positive yields on, on bonds and refers to, to South Africa. You know, a government bond there yields 10%. Inflation is down at 6%, so it's even a, a real a positive real yield. She also talks about the Impesa issued bonds in, in Kenya. Uh, they did attract retail investors and they do have positive real yields. Um, so it's a kind of all about the the efficiency with which you um, can buy and sell those. And and I think you would agree with me, or if we can get retail investors involved in these markets, and maybe tokenization is a way to do that, it could help them to grow um, more quickly. And just before I leave the topic, Anthony Woolley has also made a, a point related to this, where he says that Raja referred to the priority to put an app in the hands of investors to invest in bonds electronically. Impesa, to some extent, has managed to do that. Once that happens, do you see investors needing multiple apps to access multiple bond venues, or do you see a distribution network emerging that enables institutions to give accredited investors one app to trade bonds listed across many global venues, such as ADEX, Agora, Ledger Edge, and, uh, and, and STX? So, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of lost where my question is in this, but are there technologies, and is tokenization one of those technologies that can drive retail investors to support the bond markets and make them grow faster and maybe take some of that business which is going into privately managed debt yeah um look i think uh, as i mentioned the singtel bond is a five-year us dollar and it's paying 3.56 percent so uh, i do think there will be um interest from retail uh, or in our case accredited investors for that bond and i do think that issuers over time <clears throat> will want to see, as we in this case, want to see fractionalization 
because you know that might sort of trigger a different liquidity set than the traditional institutional investors. But there's the I think the the, the the I think the main tenet for it to work is actually also you still need a bank or a market maker to make sure there's an organized uh, price. Which comes back to the point about I don't think you can just let an algorithm decide pricing. I, I still think that it doesn't this intermediate sort of structure and advice for now in pricing, because I think there's still some level of reliance on that. It does, uh, however, I think as as we've seen, and I come back to your earlier question, this intermediate a lot of the post trade um, agents and activities. That is the one that will be interesting. If we see the way we can efficientize retail trading, this is going to expand into the efficientizing of institutional uh, trading. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the app, that's a really good question. I think I see a lot of bond ideas in different formats. I mean, we're, we're six of us here and we do different things. Uh, we have an app already, so bond trading is already sort of possible on our platform um, but the idea is that at some point this will synthesize to i suspect uh, a, you know a smaller number i think it will depend on jurisdiction as well whether app or the, the cross-border regulations will allow or not allow and uh, i think that's a different that's a different conversation for the five other of us now whatever happens here the entire $120 trillion global bond market isn't going to switch to, to, to blockchains or tokenization overnight. So um, whether or not tokenization happens, let's assume it does, there will be a long and slow transition and the old traditional market will exist alongside the new tokenized market. Now, these markets are going to need to interoperate. And uh, an attendee has asked an interesting question in this respect, said if the market players are settling on interoperable blockchains, uh, which they would need to do, as well as with analog um, markets as well, uh, with tokens that are transferable across those those chains, and indeed, we're going to old-fashioned bonds are going to have to be transferable as well um, across from analog to, to blockchain. Anyway, interoperability is the question here. Is there not an opportunity here to disintermediate SWIFT, which is the main source, of, if you like, of interoperability, certainly in post-trade, in the in the bond markets of today. Um, maybe, Marco, maybe you've got some some thoughts on this. We will have had to have had some because of what you're trying to do at Ethereum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very in line with what I was talking before about permissionless or permissionless infrastructure. Yeah, I think that uh, the question can be seen twofold. So there's the Swift network operator where Swift messages go through. Uh, and that's the Swift messages standard. Uh, the um, the aim to remove the Swift messages standard it's really difficult because, as we said before, the infrastructure is built 60 years ago and is still running. So the uh, the ambition to remove uh, the Swift messaging standard it's uh, maybe too high and and too too ahead in the future uh, because it needs a great restructure of uh, all the infrastructure on banks and market participants. Um, the possibility to not use the SWIFT network is something that can be bring by uh, can be brought by tokenization. Uh, and that's true because once I have a token on a blockchain, uh, I can automate workflows uh, as all the other uh, panelists were saying before, I can use the technology to automate workflows. I can even put IoT and AI to improve the things. But when it comes to operate on a token, 
that is issuing the token, transfer the token, or triggering function like uh, post trading activities, uh, then it comes to uh, interacting with one or multiple blockchain at the end of the day. So this cannot involve also the SWIFT network. Tokenization. Um, Raja, um, to, to, to go back to that, if we, if we take the view that, that, that tokenization is the way to bring retail in, it, it could lead to some cost savings, both for, for issuers and, uh, and therefore some benefits for, for investors. Um, there is presumably a reason why you're not excited about, about tokenization. And what might that reason be? Yeah, I, um, so I think firstly, I would challenge the view that tokenization is going to have any impact on uh, broader retail engagement or not, right? Because retail en engagement and participation in fixed income happens. You just need to change the denom, but you need to get the regulator's approval to do that. You need to put more docs out there, right? So retail participation in fixed income has been a feature of fixed income for centuries. Uh, the reason it's not a feature of today's world is because of uh, regulation and, and macroeconomics, right? So um, that's uh, kind of step number one. Uh, I, I sort of read through Anthony's question around around the app. Um, my suggestion on the app wasn't for an app on the investor side, but it's rather an app for the issuer side, right? So I think as investors, you know, whether retail or, or professional, you know, we're used to having apps. And you know, well, if I trade stocks, I go to my brokerage company, and or I trade with Robinhood, and, and those apps exist. But interestingly, on the investor side in order to kind of um, make the user experience easy, the, uh, the window through which investors access the capital markets is through aggregators, is through brokers, is through kind of wealth managers, asset managers, and then ultimately custodians or, you know, pooled products such as mutual funds, RTS, and then custodians, right? So the reason, you know, to your question, why we're not like, you know, the most evangelical that um, tokenization is going to disintermediate all of the existing participants and players in the market is that those those players exist for reasons that are not just due to the lack of a tech solution, right? So a custodian is there to, you know, as, as an individual investor, I look to a broker and then the custodian where my investments might sit to give me access globally, right? So... Today, you know, if, if you think you asked a question about sort of uh, fragmentation of blockchains and interoperability of blockchains, we have that today in the world of CSDs. You know, in the international bond market, we have Euroclear and Clearstream, but there are domestic CSDs. And obviously the EU with Target 2 is trying to ensure that within the EU, you know, any security that's in one CSD is accessible by another CSD. But move outside of the EU and you don't have that as an obvious thing, right? So if the security is created and existed within the domestic US market, it's within DTCC. So if I'm a retail investor in Italy, I can't obviously access that, right? You know, those, that's, that's a silo. Um, and you apply that around the world. You know, if you want to trade Apple or HSBC or, or a multinational company in, in the equity world, you know, that's, that's easy. Like most of the apps are set up to do that. If you want to trade a really niche but listed company in a country where you know you have no presence and you call up your broker it's very difficult but your broker might be able to make it happen for you right so in a world where everything is sitting on a ledger but on multiple different types of ledgers you're thus going to still have these kind of 
aggregators or these intermediaries that consolidate everything for me, right? So, um, you know, if tokenization brings economic benefits to the market, that's wonderful. And those benefits will accrue to all of various market participants. But we definitely don't think that tokenization is going to suddenly make a certain type of financial institution obsolete, right? Because the centralization um, or consolidation actions that they perform they perform that in today's world and they will still need to perform that in in tomorrow's world tokenization might address one of the problems you referred to if not necessarily in trading at least in financing as you said um the ecb is trying to make um collateralization easier within the eurozone it's also what hqla is x is is trying to do is trying to make it possible to use um bonds based in national csds as collateral for central or commercial bank money um, without that bond having to move out of the csd it's in by tokenizing it and that same logic could presumably be applied on the trading side your broker could borrow it from the the csd where it currently resides is that not a clear instance where tokenization could actually make trading as well as financing more efficient I, I think I think the, the 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 trading problem is 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 more of an access problem, right? It's not a um, the, the, what HQLX are solving is they're solving a cost problem with 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 repo, right? So if you have a fixed number of participants who are involved in the repo market, and you know you sort of rip out the old way of doing things and you know introduce a new way of doing things, it's it's much much faster and and within the margins of of, of the repo world that, that that makes a meaningful difference but for the wider distribution of bonds you know around the world you know tokenization is, isn't really going to make an impact you know you either you either have access to it or you or you don't right charlie dominic um so can i pick up on a, a, a couple of points um you you asked about earlier about disintermediation and why isn't anybody being disintermediated? And I think we've 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 sort of covered that um, in, in a number of ways. One of which is that the roles of all of these participants have evolved over a very long period of time, and they're all there for a reason. Roger's just spoken about custodians. Uh, we know what CSDs do. It's extremely hard to sweep away those roles um, with a black box, um, and it's very hard for relationship reasons uh for regulatory reasons for you know legal reasons to do that um i think in in, in my view disintermediation uh will be a, a self-imposed process it, it will be those people who um do not change do not uh, improve their internal processes will self-select themselves for disintermediation and I, I, I sometimes think that the way in, and this is not a personal remark, it's just a, that you use the phrase tokenization, it, it has a loaded um, element to it um, in, in, in what you're saying, which is that, that there are tokenizers who are outsiders and uh, libertarians and free form and Bitcoin, and they're opposed to the established world um, and the incumbents. And I, I don't think that is actually 
the reality of, of what we're dealing with. If you look at some of the incumbents, they're amongst the most radical tokenizers or, or, or the ones who are wanting to tokenize. And what, what can I give you some examples of that? And I'd say the central banks, look at what the central banks are doing in terms of exploring central bank digital currencies. They are tokenizing, they're looking to how they can tokenize their cash. And everybody, they're all working on it. Um, some are very public. The Banque de France has famously uh, uh, performed an incredibly important leg in that first EIB digital bond. Um, but it's not just them. If you look at what um, some of the CSDs have announced, look at what Deutsche Börse have announced with D7, uh, which is a radical transformation of the way that they're doing it. And I believe the other CSDs are, are in the other international CD, CSDs uh, are, are in a similar position. Um, so there is an awful lot of work going on. Look at the people investing in HQALX. This is uh, not not some strange group of um, organizations we've never heard of. It's started with Deutsche Börse, it's BNY, it's Goldman Sachs, it's Citigroup, it's uh, uh, BNP. You know, these are uh, major organizations which we regarded as the incumbents, and they're all looking at how to introduce uh, digital transformation, uh, both in terms of the workflow and the asset. Uh, somebody mentioned, I think it was Stefan was talking earlier on about some of the benefits. If we enter a world in which we have atomic settlement of assets, i.e. the transfer of legal title and the payment simultaneously with no gap, that unlocks trillions of dollars of balance sheets, which are tied up in risk, and regulatory capital. This is a huge benefit to the world. So to, 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 to the, the two points I wanted to make here about, disintermediation is not something that is, 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 is going to be imposed just from the outside. It's something that the, the incumbents who are seeking to tokenize, loaded word, but bring digital transformation into their businesses will produce as well. And I don't think there's a custodian or an IPA in the world who for a minute thinks that in five or 10 years time, their businesses are going to be doing the same things. Custodians are not gonna be custodying physical assets. They're gonna be custodying keys and accounts, uh, uh, wallets. You know, this is, this is you know, ownership of a digital asset is defined by control of a wallet. So this is, these are the changes going on. And if anybody thinks that these people are not right at the center of the transformations are taking place, then, then they're not operating in the same world that I am. A final point for my long monologue. We, this public-private blockchain thing is, is a slightly jaundiced um, uh, thing. It, the world has got to have interoperating networks. And whether you're on the public or the private side of that, they're all looking for ways there are bridges between those. Um, uh, and no more importantly than in David's business in, in Ledger Edge, you cannot trap pools of liquidity in one 
uh, uh, one chain and not allow liquidity to transfer. So I think you know I I, I think the 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 public versus private debate is is a little bit redundant. Other than my final point, whether it's a public blockchain or a private one, you have to have control. You have to be able to manage KYC and AML. Xavier Loire, um on a panel not dissimilar to this a few weeks ago, talking about the EIB bond, spoke about how that role that was performed by the CSD was actually transferred to SOCGEN Forge in terms of who is able to get onto the platform. So the idea of these highly regulated securities, whether they're digital or the, the existing world, being able to flow between investors without some checks and balances, sanctions, KYC, AML, someone's got to perform those checks. Sorry. Nope, that's that's very helpful, um, John. And I was, I was wondering, and, and, and perhaps, um, Oye, you have a, a thought on this. So as I was listening to Charlie speaking about how those who get disintermediated will in effect choose themselves, and he gave many examples of CSDs and investment banks and custodian banks, which are actually responding to this to this opportunity. So what, what would your advice be to, a, to, say, a CSD or a custodian bank who hasn't really done anything yet? I'm thinking here particularly of, of CSDs. Do they have some kind of duty, some kind of responsibility to help bring these this new market environment into being? And well, that's the question. Really. Do, do they do they owe it not just to themselves, but to the to the markets they serve, actually, to do something to help it to happen? You're on um, mute, were you? Well, I mean, we we see that um, at the moment with uh, traditional banks, right, around the banking side, the arranging side, the syndication side, uh, where you know they are very keen. Uh, you know, there's always a question about buy build partner. And a lot of in institutions are already in that thought process by build a partner. Um, we haven't seen, personally not seen the CSD and, and other custodian conversations, but we're seeing it at the bank, at the banking level. Um, and I think it's a matter of time before the incumbents all have to uh, think about the adoption or working with us or, you know, how does the ecosystem change? And they still play a very big role, right? I mean, in the at the end of the day, they control the relationships with all the asset managers and, and the largest investors uh, in the world. And it's actually on them to start uh, transforming or moving towards uh, digitization and, and blockchain. So I think it will happen. Uh, but personally, it's it's not uh, happening with us at that, at that conversation level. It's happening now more at the banking level. And the distribution level. Yeah. If, if I could just yeah. jump in, sure. Dominic, but since you specifically mentioned CSDs, I mean, I, I do have to mention that um, Clearstream Deutsche Börse Group is, uh, you know, one of the shareholders of Origin. So, um, you know, we can at least talk to them as, as an institution, and they're not just a shareholder of ours, they're a shareholder of HQLAX. And Charlie mentioned the D7 project that they're, they're doing um, internally, uh, and, and, and clearly, obviously, uh, they're uh, peers in in the CSD market are doing things. So I think it would be, um, you know, it would be an in, uncharacteristic or a incorrect characterization to suggest that CSDs aren't 
actively looking at this. In fact, there's, there's 150 probably... CSDs in the world. That's what I'm thinking. You know, Tearstream is one, and there's 149 other ones which are possibly not doing as much. Um, Potentially, my... though, yeah. Though, though I would say that um, the you know just because you haven't seen a press SDX release is doing does it... as well. I mean, you know, I, I can see that I can see where progress is being made, but. Um, Dominic, if you look at the number of assets, the volume of assets under control, then the, the between Euroclear and Clearstream, you know, SGX out in Singapore, SGX, the, the, these are the big players. Uh, I, I think, you know, the Euroclear has 37 trillion uh, euros of assets under in its system. Um, I, I don't think there are that many CSDs that have mm -hmm. anything like that. So it, it's, a, it's a measure of the big players are doing things is is, is yeah. it's we, we have we have many csds listening to this and i've just wanted you to give some thoughts to them because they've got they they do have domestic equity and and bond markets and they're thinking serious about whether they need to start tokenizing things that that was all now we're into our last five minutes or so so it might be just we've had a very robust discussion i think so it would be good just to get some some final thoughts really about how you think that we can you know we're all agreed that there's there's lots of scope for for improvements and enhancements uh, in in the bond markets, the question is how we how we bring them about, whether that's by regulation, whether that's by collaboration, whether that's purely by by competition. Those are the ways in which we can do it. I'd just like a, a, a brief thought from each of you as to as to how you think we go forward from from here, because we will come back to this topic. Um, it's moved on a lot in the last twelve months, to be honest. So um, uh, perhaps um, Marco, I could come to you first. Um, if we're looking to transform how bonds are issued, traded, settled, safe kept, do we need to collaborate, to compete, or do we need to ask the regulator to do something? I think that, I mean, before taking this point, I would love to reinforce one of the uh, of the points written by Charlie related to uh, permissionless versus permissioned. Uh, I totally agree that uh, regarding of permissionless and permissioned, there, there's a need to put in place some checks. Uh, issuer needs to be under the total control of issued asset, and also that there should be some uh, compliance check uh, regarding of the type of the uh, of the infrastructure. I want to also I want just to uh, to put the accent on the fact that uh, the interoperability topic uh, it's mandatory, but it's very difficult to achieve. So we can end up having multiple private network. But in order to have them to interoperate each other, we need a lot of intermediaries and like bridges that are third party at the end of the day. So we are going to reduce or transform the role of some intermediaries by using tokens, but we're going to add additional intermediaries in the role of bridges. So that's why I really think that uh, there could, will be some spaces in the interoperability part, but in the very long term, we were all uh, going to uh, to select few uh, infrastructure to be uh, really able to interoperate each other, reducing uh, the most possible the, the number of uh, intermediaries that will allow this interoperation or interoperability. Uh, so the next step, I really believe it's, uh, as uh, was already mentioned by many of the panelists, is the collaboration. I mean, without the collaboration, we are not able to, um, uh, to increase uh, the benefits and to maximize the benefits of this technology. So more than competition, I think collaboration is the most important part. Stefan, um, you heard um, Marco refer to a process of convergence, both technically, 
and in terms of organizations there'll be some kind of consolidation but he thinks in the short term we need to collaborate with each other which sounds to me a bit like cat herding sounds like a very difficult thing to do isn't competition um easier than collaboration no no i don't think so i'm I actually tend to agree 100 with marco here so i'm um, i mean just waiting for the laws to potentially change in the future for me that doesn't sound like a good idea um that's why we for example chose to act under the existing laws and just run the new technology under something which is already possible to be regulated as um and looking at who we are in this panel um there are so many areas where tokenization makes sense i mean be it the asset be it the workflow be pre-trade be it uh, secondary trading be it post-trading i mean and for each area you will find specialized players so i don't see many dlt players currently competing in the same areas and markets, to be honest, which means that collaboration is for sure something we all consider. Uh, but you're right, we we have to be careful to continue working in our own fields and, and not lose ourselves in collaboration discussions. David, you're about to go live in a couple of weeks. Um, what would accelerate the growth of what you're doing fastest? Would it be more collaboration, more competition, or a regulatory intervention of some kind? Yeah, I think this has been a really great discussion and thanks again for having all of us and to the panelists. Great to talk to you all. Um, I, I think that the things that would move us fastest along in terms of modernizing this market are number one, those applications and solutions that have a real value add for customers now and in the future. I, I don't think anyone's really that interested in buying a, a solution that only works five years from now. And, and so I think in, in some ways there's some real competition there and that each solution has to prove its worth to customers with a real business benefit today. Um, in terms of collaboration, though, it's really important that um, you know as we build this new market, this new digital landscape, we're including the right service providers and, and the right market participants who will add the real value in the market just in a slightly different way going forward. You know, and I, I think just to kind of put a bookend on on the provocative but exciting title to, to this um, this panel. I, I don't think that it's a um, I don't think that it's a, a Trojan virus for, for disintermediating people in the market. I, I think rather that you know market participants are going to add value in in a new way in the future. For us, banks make prices in bond markets that are currently quite illiquid and they're going to continue to do that because they hold much of the balance sheet, much of the data, and that's going to keep going forward. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a really important point of collaborating with market participants to to build that new uh, that new ecosystem, and and that's exactly what what we're doing. I think the final point is as we look at that that kind of that next level of market innovation. We talked about digitizing workflows. We talked about digitizing assets. I think um, some regulatory clarity and and more digitally enabled infrastructure that is fit for institutional grade transactions is critical because this will help in our world a bond go from digital issuance all the way through digital custody automatic workflows automatic reactions to the market automatic interactions with the market you know in in our case lots of algorithmic and systematic trading you know lots of etf and parametric trading portfolio trading that that's all happening and it will be made even easier with digital assets and then critically digital settlement um you know i, I think tying all that together is not going to it's not going to be one single solution that that works on that entire workflow it's really you know lots of lots of digitally enabled infrastructure um, that also requires that regulatory clarity so it's, it's a very exciting uh next one three five and and ten years we're, we're excited to be there 
Thanks, David. This is a hedgehog problem, not a fox problem. We have to do many different things. Charlie, you heard David say there that, uh, that regulatory clarity would help. And this is a point which you made earlier and you, you dismissed my idea that actually we had regulatory clarity already. Or if we didn't, that in common law markets like our own in the United States, we could actually make the law up. We don't have to do what they did in Switzerland or France and rewrite the whole law. Um, you know, to what extent is, you know, would a, what regulatory intervention do you have in mind that would actually accelerate the transformation of the bond markets? Do you have one thing in particular? I, I, I don't. I don't think there is one thing, Dominic. I think it's look. We we, we tend to think if we if we're in Europe that under the EU umbrella we have one homogenous market, but of course we don't, um, and and we have a huge amount of different national differences even within the EU. Um, and uh, in, in and yes, you're right. In the in in the UK, where uh, we benefit from a uh, a common law system which is um, uh, provides a, a great deal more flexibility in terms of expressing natural language legal contracts in 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 code. So we we have lots of the, the, but there are lots of differences. Um, but the one thing that's critical about the international bond market um, uh, uh, and even domestic bond markets is there has to be a general acceptance about what is a bond um, and you can't we we mustn't go down the route of fragmenting our markets by saying well this is a bond in this jurisdiction but it's not in that jurisdiction it's the road to hell and it's and it's the road to to a a, a terrible and even worse place of liquidity and just as an aside the liquidity problems that we have were apparent back in the you know, going back to the 90s and through the 2000s. This is not just a post-GFC 2008 problem about market liquidity. This is a long-standing structural problem, which is just being made worse by some of the factors already mentioned. So I think there's no magic wand for regulation. I think there is a need for collaboration, and I, and I, I hesitate to say this, amongst regulators uh, to have some common standards. But I think we're just going to have to work our way through these things. My one final plea to people out there is please do something. Don't just sit on your hands. Don't wait for everyone else to do it and then see. There are no, this isn't VHS and Betamax for those old enough to know what that is. There isn't going to be a single winner out of this. There isn't going to be one chain. There isn't going to be one origination platform. There isn't going to be one CST. It's going to be a, a, a whole ecosystem of different operators. So just sitting there and waiting and saying, I'll let the World Bank and EIB do all the work and then I'll fall. And equally, the banks, please do something about your onboarding. It's a nightmare for fintechs. It, it, this is, it shouldn't take as long as it does to um, to adopt new technologies and go through 400 line uh, Excel spreadsheets with information security questionnaires. This is dark ages stuff. And I can see all my, my fellow panelists smiling at, as they know the pain of this. So, um, so no magic wand for regulation and banks, please make onboarding easier. Very good point there about regulatory balkanization actually obstructing liquidity. I think. And yes, I did enjoy watching uh, Oye recognise your observation about things being referred up the chain before it could be done. Um, and Oye, I'll come to you last of all. So it's very late for you in a minute, but so I hope you won't mind staying us a bit longer. Raja, what's your, what's your um, 
advice? Is it collaboration? Is it competition? Is it regulation? Is it, or is it going to be this incredibly uh, complex, multifaceted, multifactorial transition which we're going to have to live through as we as we move from the old world to the new? Um, yeah, I think unfortunately it's it's kind of the the, the last point, and and I think um, what is maybe important to observe is the difference, the different pace of change in domestic markets versus the international market. Because in the domestic markets, you have one rulemaker, you have one regulator, you can change things. And so to use an example from you know, our, our friends and partners, Clearstream, D7 is being deployed within the domestic German market because there's the electronic securities law that has been established domestically within Germany. That has no application within the international markets. So what's the difference, just to put it simply, a bond that has a DE ISIN is a domestic German bond. So things can change faster because that's a localized market and there's a local number of players and they can change. The international market where the ISIN start with XS, there is no rule maker. It's, it's like the UN, you know, there, there's no authority. It's just a group of institutions who have come together 60 years ago to kind of create a market. So thus to change that, because there is no, there's no, um, with a benevolent dictator that runs it, you know, you have to get all of the participants to change kind of together. So what does that mean? What should people be doing? Um, I think one, people need to recognize, first, just recognize the landscape and have realistic assumptions as to the pace of change. And then secondly, whether you're an issuer, a dealer, a CSD, a startup, uh, you know, a, a tech team within an incumbent financial institution, and the most important thing you can do is to not make your project contingent on progress outside of your institution. If you're waiting for a regulator to do something or a bank or a CSD to do something, or you're waiting for something outside of your institution, outside of your control, your business is probably going to run out of cash and you're going to go bust or your initiative is probably going to run out of funding and you're going to be looking for a job like that. That is the blunt truth. So you have to find sort of the problems that can be solved today and the value that you can create today and value that can be accrued to your efforts today. And step by step, as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months, months, to years and the years into decades, we will slowly see this market change. But if you skip the steps and you sort of are trying to shoot for a world in five years time where there is some magic regulation and everyone has agreed on some infrastructure. If you skip the steps, you, you are going to be disappointed that those things that your project was contingent on didn't materialize. Thank you. Well, the same point that David made actually create value now as a way of making progress. You know, you're, all, you're always moving forward. Oye, the last word from, from you, uh, and thank you for staying up so late. Now, looking at Singapore from, from Europe, you appear to be doing things, getting things done. You appear to have a very dynamic, very disciplined, but imaginative regulator, and things are actually actually happening. Is it all an illusion, um, or is the Singapore experience got something very important to say to what's happening in Europe and the United States? Yeah, I, I do think the Singapore regulator is extremely uh, progressive in uh, its early definition. Right. Uh, and, and the clarity of that definition was the one that actually gave us that confidence to uh, you know, set up and build the tech and, and to launch. Right. And the sandbox 
uh, that we entered into two years, three years ago now, four years ago, uh, actually was very good because it helped them to redefine what was tokenization as it relates to securities tokens. So I think that they are extremely, extremely ahead of the game. It do should provide a framework for many uh, regulators to watch and see how that's developing. There are, however, with the bond, uh, with bonds, uh, very complex stakeholders, not just with, let's say, uh, one department in MAS, it actually touches many departments within that. And so the synthesis of that uh, is not always 100%, but I think they're quite close to getting there. But they're not all there. And, and I do think that there will be some further uh, definition and clarity with, uh, for example, tax. Um, I think at the moment it seems quite clear, but you know, with the evolution of the market, one never knows when, when a, a tax issue is always, always pops up and has to be solved. So um, I, I, I think that we have a very encouraging environment. I do hope that uh, the other regulators across the world do come to that landing as well, because uh, I think we need the, the regulators need to be clear what exactly is a digitized security and how that's being operated. And the more consistent we get that, the more global this, uh, this platform is able to operate. Mm -hmm. Very interesting point to you about how collaboration between the private sector and the regulator actually helped both parties and now we you're recommending that actually that happens on a on a global scale i think we must stop there we have run over even our extended time i'd like to thank our panelists very much for an incredibly rich uh, robust and fruitful discussion charlie berman from agora stephen bosshart from sdx or you too from from adex in singapore uh, marco monica from consensus uh, david nickel from ledger edge and raja uh, Palani Appen from, from Origin. Thank you all. I'd like to thank the audience also for their uh, very interesting and um, uh, seminal questions and, and comments. But for now, it's goodbye from the seven of us. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>